The scripture text this morning is from Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from the prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Again, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you as people desperately need to hearing your voice, who desperately need to know your presence, your goodness, your care for us. So may you speak loudly, for we confess often we're hard of hearing. May you speak clearly. May we love your son with all our hearts, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We may not be aware of this, but there is a Facebook group that is called the Southern Seminary Women's Facebook Group. Yeah, Southern Seminary is a local seminary, and uh, this Facebook group is for women who are some way affiliated with that community. So whether they're students, whether they're wives of students, whether they're alumni, wives of alumni, or whether they just live close to campus, and people will post uh, questions about, you know, where do you guys, blah, 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 or advice, uh, job offers. Um, back when Mark was in residency, we had a couple different nannies, and we found all of them through that Facebook page. That is where all the nannies in Louisville hang out, is on that Facebook page, and they were wonderful. And I'm obviously not a member of this group because I am not a woman, but Mark is. And a few years ago, uh, someone posted a question, hey, y'all, what do you guys have, what do you keep in preparation for like a, a, a national disaster? What kind of supplies do you keep on hand? And this thread blew up. And all I can say is that there are some very prepared Southern Seminary women. <laughs> People were talking about they never drive their car past half empty. Like when their gas tank is to half, they fill it up so they're never in a place where they're almost empty. People killing multiple gallons of gasoline in their garage just in case. Large stockpiles of canned goods, like six months worth of food they're keeping. Uh, Water purification systems, power generators, uh, even ammunition. And so we realize, you know, when the zombie apocalypse happens, like you want a couple Southern Seminary women on your team. You don't want Southern Seminary men. They will slow you down with all their books, which they will insist on taking with them. But the women, they are survivors. Get them in your group. And, 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 and to finish that story up, we now have 25 gallons of water in our house, as well as dried beans, a uh, life straw where you can like, it's supposed like filter water you can drink. I wouldn't trust it. And, um, and thermal blankets. So we're, we're, we're very, very mildly prepared for whatever may come. But that's an interesting question. How do you prepare for disasters? How do you prepare for hardships? Now, Jesus is in his last meal with his disciples, and he's not 
preparing them for a natural disaster or a nat- you know, national disaster, that kind of a thing. He's preparing them for persecution and hardship. Um, he's trying to help them understand that when the tide turns against Jesus and the crowds turn on Jesus and kill him, it won't end with that. But then anyone who had followed Jesus, who had been part of Jesus' group, will be targeted next. Are they ready for that? And if you remember from two weeks ago, his disciples, they are hearing Jesus in the way that this Facebook thread did. And they said, yeah, we're ready. We have two swords. We're ready for the violence. We're ready for the persecution. But of course, Jesus is trying to prepare them in a different way. In our text this morning, we see Jesus telling his disciples how to prepare. And it's through prayer. And in fact, Jesus himself prepares for his crucifixion through prayer. And we'll find the the reason why this is how Jesus prepares is that through prepare, through prayer, we receive the strength we need for when we pray, for we pray to a good God who is our Heavenly Father. And so he answers us when we call to him. The outline for us this morning is uh, first point going to be Jesus' preparation. Second point is Jesus' agony. And the third point is Jesus' answered prayer. Before we, again, get into this, just quick context of where we are. Again, Jesus is finishing up his final meal with his disciples. This comes at the end of a whirlwind of a couple days in Jerusalem where he confronts the religious leaders. There's growing opposition. He's teaching in the temple. He seems to be teaching in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here he finally has his last meal with his disciples. That's ended. Jesus knows the end is imminent. It's coming any moment. He knows what's coming for him. And so he begins to prepare. This brings us to our first point, Jesus' preparation. Follow with me as I read verses 39 to 42. And he came out and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So the setting, he's on the Mount of Olives. This was a small hill right outside Jerusalem, a short walk. Uh, The other gospel narratives tell us he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, which would have been on the slopes facing Jerusalem. And it says that he goes there as was his custom. Perhaps Jesus had taught his disciples at various times in this garden. We're not too sure. But as he goes out there, he gives his disciples a command. Verse 40 says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he repeats that command at the end as well. And I don't want us to misread this, because it can sound, when he's reading this, as if Jesus is rebuking his disciples. Because they don't, uh, they don't heed his command. And it can sound like he's like, come on, guys. But what we want to see here is Jesus is approaching the end of his life. The end is imminent. He knows what's coming, the agony, the, the suffering and he's still caring for his disciples. He's still concerned for what's going to happen to them when he's gone. See Jesus' love for those who follow him. If you remember, I read this last time again, but John 13, 1, the apostle John, who would have experienced this firsthand, he said, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is kind of a side point, but even in Jesus' agony, he doesn't stop caring about his disciples. We see the heart of Christ in this. But he gives this command, and this command is pretty astonishing. The end is coming, violence is coming, hardship is coming, pray. 
Of all the things, right? I mean, I think many of us probably would have been to disciples. Let's defend ourselves. You know, if this was in America, you're looking for legal solutions to the problems. Jesus says, no, the way you're going to prepare for this is prayer. And the reason that the the solution, the, the best preparation for the disciples is prayer is because the disciples' greatest danger is not physical violence, although that would be terrible. Their greatest danger is a is what you call apostasy, turning away from Christ. That is the worst, most tragic thing that could happen to the disciples, and this is the reason why. One of my favorite movies that depicts Christianity is called Of Gods and Men. It's a 2010 film, depicts a Cistercian monastery in Africa during like political unrest. It's, it is not a page-turning movie. Like, don't watch it expecting to be riveted, but it is powerful, plotting in, in beautiful many ways. But one of the monks, he's an elderly monk, he's in his 70s, he's, he's giving uh, love advice to a, a local young woman who is wanting to get married, and, he, and, and it's just really very cute, very beautiful scene. And finally she turns to him and she says, have you ever been in love? And this monk replies, well, several times, yes. And then I encountered another love, even greater. And I answered that love. And it's been a while now, over 60 years. Romantic love is an incredibly powerful thing. 90% of pop songs deal with romantic love. 90% of poetry deal with romantic love. If you've been in love, you know it's, it's life-consuming. Your world narrows to that one person that you are in love with. But what this man is saying, and he's echoing Christians throughout the centuries, is that there is an even greater love that we find in the presence of Jesus Christ, of which even the most passionate romantic love is just a, a pale shadow And so the most dangerous, tragic thing that any human could ever do is to turn their back on that love, of which there is none greater. And that's why Jesus tells his disciples, don't get swords, pray. Pray that you may not enter temptation. But he doesn't just tell them what to do, he demonstrates what this looks like. And here we get Jesus' example. Again, follow along in verses 41 to 42. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It says he moves a stone's throw away. That can mean very different things for different one of us. But the point is not how far you could throw a stone, but if you took a stone and just tossed it five yards, ten yards. He's far enough away where he's separated from the disciples, but he's close enough that they can see him. They can hear him. How else would we know what he said? He's giving them an example. He says, pray that you may not enter temptation and watch me how I do it, me, the Lord of life, the Son of God, and preparing myself for my, my sufferings through prayer. And it's interesting. Prayer in the New Testament is different than prayer in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's, it's usually done as a community in the temple, and almost all of the individual prayer we see, the personal prayer we see is prophets who have a special anointing from God, but your average Joe Schmo Israelite doesn't. There's a couple exceptions, but in the New Testament, all of a sudden, every person has the Spirit of God. Every person can pray. Jesus says, don't go to the temple to pray. Go into your closet. Shut the door and pray to the God, your Father in heaven, who hears you. And so as, as, as the early Christian churches understanding what does prayer look like in the age of the Spirit, where the Spirit is poured out on every believer, They're looking at examples like this of what prayer looks like. 
And Jesus gives us two aspects for his disciples to emulate in his prayer and for us, 2,000 years later, to emulate in our own personal prayer lives. The first aspect of Jesus' prayer here is honesty. Jesus prays that the cup might be removed from him. He's saying, if there's a way for me not to die on a cross, let that happen. This is a strange request, considering what Jesus came to earth to do. And he's told his disciples multiple times, it's necessary for me that I die, that I suffer and die. If there's a request that Jesus should not make, this is it. But this is the, this is the desire of his heart. Lord, God, Father, I don't want to do this. If there's another way. Sometimes I think our prayer lives can be muzzled because we're afraid to be honest with what our real desires are, as if there are desires like, no, a Christian ought not to desire that. I, I ought not to want that. I ought not to think that. And so we muzzle our prayers. But again, we, we have to remember we pray to a father who loves us. And as a dad, I can tell you, if there's something weighing on my kids' hearts, it doesn't matter how silly they may think it is, it doesn't matter how foolish they may think it is, if it's weighing on them, I want to know. That's how God is, the God that we pray to. But we have to qualify this, because Jesus isn't just honest. But the second aspect for us to emulate is Jesus approaches the Father in humble surrender. If we don't qualify this, we just turn prayer into us making demands of God as if he's our messenger boy. And that's not the picture here. Jesus is honest with what he wants, with his desire, but his greatest desire is to do the will of his Father. And he, and he communicates this in all kinds of ways in his prayer. First, in his body posture, he comes and he kneels. Now again, because we come from a tradition that has been reflecting on passages like this for centuries, we don't think anything of that. But, but the standard way for a Jew to pray at this time would have been to stand. So if you remember the story of the Pharisee, or sorry, it's a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple, Jesus says the Pharisee kind of barges his way up front and stands and prays. Whereas the tax collector stands in the back and beats his chest and says, I'm not worthy. God have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. You would stand. And so for Jesus to fall to his knees, or as Matthew says, he falls on his face, this is communicating deep humility, deep surrender. And then in the way that Jesus prays, again, he begins his prayer with, Father, if you are willing, if you're willing, if this is according to your will, he prays his prayer, and he finishes with, but again, not my will, but yours be done. When we pray, we want to be honest, but remember, God isn't our equal. He's our creator. He's the light of the world. And if we find ourselves in places where, be truthful, our greatest desire is not that God's will be done, we want to be honest with that. We don't hide that from God. But that's when we approach God in confession and repentance. And we ask God to change our hearts. This is the image of prayer. Honesty and surrender. We approach with honesty for we pray to a good father who wants to hear us. He genuinely does. He wants to hear everything. We approach him with humble surrender because he is God and we are not. So Jesus prepares for his suffering and his death through prayer and, and he teaches us to do Likewise, But we have to ask, why is Jesus' suffering going to be so intense? Why does he have to prepare so urgently for this? And this is where we get to our second point, which is Jesus' agony. 
Again, follow along as I read verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is a difficult verse to read as I was meditating on it this week. It's just, it's just hard. Jesus agonizes to think of our Lord. I mean, the, 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 the wording is very graphic. Sweat falling down to the earth. And what's happening is, I think as Jesus is praying, he's beginning to get a very real sense of what's coming. And it terrifies him. And he prays out of that fear and that urgency to his Father. He agonizes. Now, as a side note, before we get into, again, what Jesus' agony is over, we see a really human picture of Jesus in this story. And this is, this, Jesus' humanity is, is kind of up front right now. Now, early Christians labored to try to understand the person of Jesus. In what sense is he God? In what sense is he human? And, and the orthodox answer that they came to in the Chalcedonian Creed, which we confessed together this morning, is that Jesus is in every way God, and he is in every way human, accepting sin. What that means is that when Jesus is in the garden and he's looking ahead to the suffering that's coming, he feels real fear. It's not like God fear. It's real fear. When his disciples are snoring, sleeping in the depths of his despair, he feels real loneliness. He feels real discouragement. And the reason why this is important is that we pray to a Lord who is a co-sufferer with us. When we pray in our own loneliness, in our own discouragement, we pray to one who understands, who's walked that road before us, Jesus is the son of God, absolutely, but he's also truly God and truly man. But again, why is Jesus in such agony? Obviously, crucifixion was a brutal way to kill someone, but Jesus was not the only person to be crucified in history. He wasn't even the only man on that day to be crucified. What made Jesus unique was not his crucifixion, but it was the spiritual reality that was happening behind the crucifixion as Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath on sin. And this is what Jesus asks for. He says, may this cup pass from me. So we have to understand, what does Jesus mean when he talks about the cup? Well, in the Old Testament, they would use drinking, uh, they would use a cup of wine as, a, as, 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 as kind of an image of God's wrath and drinking that cup of wine as an image for what it was like to experience God's wrath. So for instance, the prophet Isaiah, he's writing to Israel who is in exile, who's experienced God's judgment on their faithlessness. And he writes in Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. You see that? He's using drinking a cup of wine as an image for experiencing God's wrath. Now, why would God in his, you know, foresight, why would Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, use that image? This is a brutal image. The reason he uses that is because there's a suffering that is so great that it makes someone look drunk. If you remember the story of Hannah in the temple, she's infertile, and in the bitterness of her spirit, she cries out to God, and Eli thinks she's drunk. Remember that? 
There's a type of suffering that is so intense it hinders our ability to process our reality. It makes us stagger and stumble as if we're drunk. That's what it's like to drink the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus himself, on the day of his crucifixion, will stumble stumble and stagger as if drunk as he drinks the cup of God's wrath to the bottom. And we have to remember, Jesus is not drinking the wrath for one person's sin, nor just for one nation's sin, but for the sin of every person. In this story, we can hear his agonized pleadings. In agony, he prays more earnestly. He cries out. We can see his sweat as it drops to the ground. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, in the midst of this, again, the point of Jesus, he was not just a masochist. He was not just giving us an example of what suffering looks like. But he did this for us and for our salvation. Again, if you remember, as we confess in the Chalcedonian Creed, all of this happened for us, for our salvation. Christ is in agony for you and for me. Some of us probably wonder at times, does God... Does God really love me? I'm not sure. Maybe a little part deep down in our hearts, we wonder. And I think we see the answer pretty definitively in the agony of Christ. You know, it's interesting. Christ's resurrected body, his glorified body, still had the, the wounds on his hands and his feet as, as eternal evidence. This was for you and your salvation. This is how Christ loves you. The, uh, the pietist tradition, if you've heard of the Moravians, um, they existed in, in what is now modern-day Germany a few hundred years ago. They would oftentimes meditate on the wounds of Christ in, in ways that are almost like gruesome in their hymns, talking about the blood of Christ and, and his wounds for them, and the reasons that they couldn't get over the love of God that is seen in Christ's wounds for sinners. It's one thing to die for a righteous person, but Christ died for the worst of sinners, for us. And so they would, they, would, they would dwell on Christ's wounds. And, 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 and in Christ's wounds, they would find forgiveness and healing for their lives. And it's no wonder that the first modern missionary movement was not William Carey, if you know your history, but 60 years before William Carey is writing his book, they're sending out missionaries from this Moravian community in Germany to Africa and Asia and North and South America because they're so compelled with the love of God for sinners as seen in the wounds of Christ. There were some who even sold themselves into slavery so that they could preach to slaves, African slaves in the Caribbean. That's what happens when the love of God grips us. We see it in the agony of Christ who suffered for us. And the agony of Jesus, although again, it's hard, it is hard to read. It's been hard for me to read this week. But in it, we see a love that is vast as the ocean. Now, there may be an objection in your mind. Okay, I, I know that Jesus loves me, but what about the Father? What's he doing in the story? Where's the proof of his love? I think that's a very valid question. We do have to acknowledge that God the Father did not die on the cross. That would be a Trinitarian heresy. We believe in a trinity, a God who is three in one. One God, but yet the three members do different things. 
But we also remember that God the Father, Son, and Spirit, as one God, always operate in unity. There is never division. Sometimes there can be a, a, a tragic misunderstanding like, God the Father wants to get me, Jesus saves me from the Father, so I like Jesus, but the Father, he's not so good. And that, that, that's just not, that's, that, that's a, a, a tragic misreading of the Bible. What is the Father's role in the redemption of the world? Well, John three sixteen, For God, the Father, so loved the world that he sent his only Son. Now, we're going to be celebrating Memorial Day in maybe, what, five to six weeks. <clears throat> and that's a day where we honor the lives of those who gave their life as an ultimate sacrifice for the country. And, and, and it's, it's, it's good that we do that, obviously. One cost of that that we don't often consider is the cost to the parents who every year lay the wreaths on the graves of the parents who send out their, their sons and their daughters knowing they might die. You know, every, every funeral is tragic. There's something that's exceptionally tragic when a parent buries their child. I'm a dad. I would die a hundred deaths before I let my kids die. That's the father's love for us, that he was willing to send his son to watch him in the grief of a father over his son. God so loved you. As the old hymn goes, I sing this to my, I sing this to my kids every night. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. Jesus prepares for his suffering through prayer, for he will soon drink the full cup of God's wrath on sin. But don't miss this. This brings us to our last point is that the Father answers Jesus' prayer. Again, Jesus is giving us a model for prayer. And in this model, we see God answer. And this again brings us to our third point, Jesus' prayer answered. Follow on in verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. In the midst of Christ's agony of prayer, God answers. Now there's two parts to this answer which makes this very interesting. The first is this angel that God sends to strengthen his son. The second part of the answer is verse 47, when the soldiers come, where God answers to Jesus' specific request, no. And so there's two truths that we see from how God answers Jesus. And the first is that God will answer prayers like this. Again, Jesus is giving us an example of what prayer looks like, honest and, and, and humble submission and, and, and humble surrender. Prayers that are offered in that spirit, God promises to answer. This is a theme all throughout the Gospels. If you remember from Luke 18, and the persistent widow, she comes to an unright, a corrupt judge, and even he will eventually give her justice. He will eventually answer if she keeps pleading. Or in the story of, uh, sorry, in the teaching in, in the Sermon on the Mount on, on prayer, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. What a promise to us who are on our own pilgrimage through life with the highs and the lows of life that we, we pray to a father who will answer us if we keep praying. Now, I discovered a, a guy named Andrew Murray. He was a pastor in South Africa in the 1800s. I discovered him this past year. And he wrote a book on prayer. 
When he says, he's, he's actually looking at this Luke 11 passage where he says, ask and it will be given to you. He says, often we don't see God's answer because we stop praying too soon. We give up. It'd be easy to read Jesus' prayer here as, well, Jesus kneels down, Father, if you're willing, remove this. If not, not my will, but yours. And stands and moves on. But the image is that Jesus is praying and he keeps praying. This is, an, this is a, a, a prayer he's giving over hours. The same prayer again and again and again. And because he doesn't give up, God answers him and sends him the most amazing you know, manifestation of God saying, Jesus, my son, I have not forsaken you. I have not forgotten you. I'm going to strengthen you. Oftentimes we, we give up too soon and so we don't see how God is going to answer. But God answers because he is a good father who hears our prayers. But the second aspect of this is that sometimes God answer, God's answer is no. The first part of answer is God sending an angel to strengthen Jesus for what comes. Then the second part of the answer is is again, verse 47, when the soldiers arrive. Jesus prays up until that moment. And that's the answer. No, Jesus, there is no other way to bring redemption to humanity. This is the only way. Sometimes we think God hasn't answered, but in reality, he's, he's saying no. But I, I, want, I want you to hear this, and that God will never only say no. It's not like we come to God's house, we knock on the door, and he shouts no through the door. It's never how God responds to his children. He may say no, but he will walk with us through whatever it is that we're going to walk through. He'll be with us. That's the point of the angel. God the Father is saying to Jesus, there is no other way. You have to do this. But I'm going to be with you. You will not be alone. Although on the cross there's, there's a sense in which Christ bearing the wrath of God is, God actually turns his back on his own son, but yet he's sending his angel to say, but yeah, I have not truly forsaken you. I'll always be with you. I'll walk with you. Know that God is good, and that even when he says no, he will care for you and he will be near you. In conclusion, as we enter the passion of Christ, at our Good Friday service, we're going to read through the crucifixion of Christ in Luke. Jesus is giving us a theological interpretation for what's really going on in the crucifixion. As Christ dies this terrible death, but the point is that he is drinking the cup of God's wrath for you and for me and for anyone who will believe. And to prepare for this, Jesus spends his last few hours in prayer. And this is a demonstration to us of the importance and the centrality of prayer in the life of a disciple. For we have a Father who hears us and who will answer us, not always in the way that we want, but he will give us what we need. Most of all, he'll give us his very self. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us to believe the depths of your love for us, that we will find healing for our souls in the wounds of your Son, who was broken for us, whose blood was shed for us, that it will grip our hearts, that it will send us out into a world that desperately needs to know that there is such healing, such forgiveness, such life, and it's only in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. 
as we go, as we enter into Easter week. May the truths of the resurrection be close to our hearts. May it give us strength for what lies ahead. May it give us joy, a joy that's not based on circumstances, but a joy that is based on the truth that Christ is alive, he has defeated death, and one day he'll come and take us to himself. We pray all these things in his holy and precious name. Amen.